This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. To really focus on the relations is to get right into the heart of what matters about the doctrine of the Trinity and to give a more, um, I don't know, a more robust answer, one that's not just about checking the right boxes. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined by my co-host and friend, Dr. James Dolezal. We are speaking today on the eternal generation of the Son. That may be an unfamiliar topic to some of you, but a very important one. And we're here with our guest, Dr. Fred Sanders, who has just co-edited a book entitled Retrieving Eternal Generation. Now, I'd invite you to to stay tuned after the interview to learn how you might receive a free copy of the book. Uh, Dr. Sanders is here. He's a professor of theology in the Tory Honors Institute of Biola University. So, Fred, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Now, I am uh, at this table. I am the least qualified person to have this discussion, (laughs) and so I'm going to turn it over to you and to James in just a second. But I wanted to open with a question just about the genesis of this book and the need for a book like this. Was there something that you saw perhaps in the churches that you visited, the students whom you teach, or just in the general evangelical theological community that made you feel like we need to talk more about the eternal generation of the Son? Yeah, there are probably several places you could go for this observation, but what Scott Swain and I and some of our collaborators noticed is that the annual meeting of the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, it seemed like there was a run of about 10 years where there was every year a paper denying or doubting or casting doubt in some way on the doctrine of eternal generation. These were not anti-Trinitarians. These are evangelical theologians, but they all had a bone to pick with this doctrine. And, you know, a few years into that, we thought, well, maybe it's time for someone to do something loud and helpful about this doctrine. So that was where the project started. Now, just briefly stated, could you give me a concise definition? What do we mean when we talk about eternal generation? These are Trinitarians, you say, but they deny eternal generation. Yes, they affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God existing eternally as three persons, co-equal, co-eternal, etc. But the doctrine of eternal generation is a, a subset, a smaller part of the classic doctrine of the Trinity, which says about the relationship between the first person and the second person, that it's a relation in which the Father and the Son stand in a particular ordered relationship. The Father generates or begets the Son, and the Son, therefore, is begotten of the Father. Fred, when you and Scott introduce the book, you start with these words, the triune God is not composed of parts. And being a simplicity guy, I, I resonate with that. Yes, that was for uh, you. Thanks. <laughs> and, and so I'm taken care of. But then you put an adversative, you say, but the doctrine of the Trinity has parts. And I think that's an interesting way of phrasing it in that our theologizing and our putting things together is, in fact, multi-part. And you're arguing that eternal generation is a key one of those components. It picks out a relationship. Maybe I could just ask this. Why is it important for our Trinitarianism that we work out this question of relations. We can, we're not talking about the spirit mm. specifically today. We could probably do that as well. But with regard to the relation of the father and son, why talk about the relation as opposed to anything else that you could talk about? How does this really service Trinitarianism in a unique way? Yeah, well, that's good. So the parts of the doctrine of the Trinity would include a doctrine about the father and a doctrine about God the son. And while we don't really have a name for the doctrine about God the Father, you know, paterology or something like that, we do, of course, have Christology and pneumatology. And ideally, anytime you're doing pneumatology, 
you're aware as a theologian that you're doing part of the doctrine of the Trinity. But notice how sort of atomistic that is. Like over here you do the Father, then over here you treat the Son, and then over there you handle the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of eternal generation is sort of interstitial or in between. It, mm-hmm. it specifically picks out names and contemplates the relation between the Father and the Son. You can't just squirrel it away in Christology. It's right. about our Lord Jesus Christ and his eternal being, but it's specifically about his relation to the Father. Right. You can't have an eternal generation that doesn't also speak of the Father. That's right. Okay. That's right. So it gets us to the nature of plurality. Mm. When we say that there are three persons and we try to locate the otherness in that or the threeness, right. um, are relations just one way of doing that or are they a unique way? Especially I'm thinking of relations of origin mm-hmm. or of going forthness, whatever that is, procession or generation. Yeah. How fromness. Does, fromness. <laughs> how does. Okay, that's our term. How does fromness say something about threeness? I mean, in other words, why not just say three minds, three sources of power, three grand collaborators of some right. sort? In other right. words, um, something like a what is sometimes called social trinitarian. Yeah. Um, this is very social. It's relations. Why is it not what we sometimes call social trinitarianism? Yeah. That's a great question, and I, I, I'm going to hold off from giving sort of – I could grade each of those things you offered there on a scale of how orthodox or helpful are they in thinking about the Trinity. Because you can talk about the three and say a lot about the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, that there is one God who exists as three persons. I've taken to describing that as a brittle way of talking mm. about the Trinity in that it gives you the three-one problem, period, even if you don't view it as a problem. You know, it's like a mystery to celebrate or rejoice in. It still just hands you that as basically what there is to the doctrine of the Trinity. And I think a lot of people, when they approach the doctrine of the Trinity, sort of stall out at that level with, well, that's mainly about how three can be one. And if you'll listen to me, we have some good answers about that. And then when I've given those answers, we're done. Right. Um, Whereas to really focus on the relations is to get right into the heart of what matters about the doctrine of the Trinity and to give a more... um, I don't know, a more robust answer, one that's not just about checking the right boxes, but actually begins to give you some insight into why those boxes are there to check. Like, why did God make this known in the first place? Okay, so let me let me um, pick up with that and ask this question. How do you get this doctrine from the Scriptures? Assuming with Thomas Aquinas and others that say our knowledge of God's triunity is only known through special revelation, there is not a natural theology of the Trinity— mm. So, of course, for Trinity and Trinitarian relations, we're mining the scriptures. What are the sorts of data, the relevant bits, biblically speaking, that pour into the formulation of the eternal generation doctrine? What types of things should readers of the Bible be looking for to come to this conclusion? Yeah, and I'm glad you framed it that way, because as we pulled together this book, Um, we immediately had a wealth of historical information. So many historical figures we wanted to treat, patristic, medieval, Reformation. The book could have been three times as long, and we still would have been guilty of omissions. So we had to make a principled decision up front that we're going to have to keep the history part short, even though it's awesome, and really dig into the scriptural part. Because unless this is a biblical doctrine, who cares what thousands of years of theologians have said about it? We've got to first establish that it's scriptural and how it's scriptural. So there... um, We have three or four chapters that try different things in this regard to commend the doctrine. Let me just kind of name two that I think go together really well. First of all, we have D.A. Carson 
demonstrating the doctrine of eternal generation from John chapter 5 without ever using the words eternal or generation. Right? That is to say— Can that be done? Can you have a doctrine and not have the exact words? That's right, because the words and even the concepts, like the concept of generatedness, is not there in John 5. We can find it elsewhere in John. But what's great about Carson's chapter is he handles Jesus' sayings and teachings there about the Son receiving life in himself from the Father. The Father has life in himself. The Son receives life in himself from the Father. And he kind of works that because it takes some thinking, right? Well, wait, right. he has life in himself, but he has it from the Father. So is it in him or from the Father? Mm. And, you know, Carson does some good, sober, exegetical work there showing that it's got to be both. And so that's a, a pretty solid grounding for the content, or you might say the judgment that's rendered in confessing the doctrine of eternal generation. I could name some other chapters, like a chapter on Hebrews and how it uses the Psalms mm. by Madison Pierce. But sort of the other pole is Lee Irons' chapter, where he goes straight to the one word, monogenes, only begotten, as it was traditionally translated. And don't we all now know, though, that that just means unique <laughs> the, or the, special? <laughs> the strong consensus since the 60s is to say that that means unique or special. And that's a, a wide consensus across a number of ideological divides and styles of biblical studies. Um, what Lee does is <laughs> it's a computer-assisted lexical search to demonstrate what sort of compound words are made with that genes ending. And so what he does there is kind of an end run around the theological lexicons, mm. because you can't do a lexical entry for every possible compound word. Right. And unless you were just a genius who read everything in the old days, you couldn't find every usage. But now there are computers. And so um, Lee gets at a really interesting line of evidence that shows that the idea of derivation, of fromness, of begottenness, is in fact built into a range of Ganesh compounds, which increases the odds that monogenase is rightly translated only begotten. Now, I don't know if any Bible translators are listening and running that through the grid of peer review to see how much Lee has moved the needle on that. What's crucial to me is that you don't have to win the fight about monogenase to establish the doctrine of eternal generation, because the doctrine doesn't hang on a word. Right. You could just go over to John 5 with D.A. Carson or go over to Hebrews 1 with Madison Pierce and perceive the content of the doctrine. So you're building, and especially as this book's put together with regard to the seven chapters on biblical material, you're building a kind of cumulative case with all that. With regard to uh, Lee Irons' chapter, though, I tend to take the somewhat cynical view that modern technology <laughs> has led to a great dumbing down in theology, and it, it doesn't tend to conduce to breakthroughs, but to sort of over... But maybe this is a case where that's... That's not true. And well, yeah, you'd have to review the data, but if it's a matter of getting to those Ganesh compounds that aren't entered in lexicons, uh, that does seem to me to be relevant data worth reconsidering. Wow. I have heard people say, oh, the translations must be revised now. This is right. Lee wins the day. I am a dabbler in New Testament Greek, so I'm waiting to see what <laughs> others, in that, field what others say. in that field say. Yeah. Right. And I knew that that was one of the stand—not that there aren't many excellent contributions here. I knew that that was a standout only because it was it was so counterintuitive to what had become sort of the, the knowing consensus. Yeah. And there's some great lines of research forward from that into how the early Greek fathers made use of that word in their writings, because hmm. that's not determinative for what it must have mean when John wrote it. But I think it is telling if you can— get a new take on it from, from Lee's argument. Right. One of the things that I did appreciate was the biblical evidence, but what struck me when I read it was there were certain lines of evidence that aren't even considered today. 
the Proverbs 8 chapter, for instance. And I wonder, as you surveyed and, and spent a lot of time with this topic, it must have, in some ways, revealed the different exegetical approaches that we take today. That's just one where I thought to myself, I, boy, I've never heard a Christmas sermon on Proverbs 8. <laughs> but, you know, there it is. And, of course, many, many commentators in the past took that as strong evidence for eternal generation. So, I mean, I wonder if you could just talk briefly about the differences in, in exegesis yeah. in, in the past and, and today with respect to this. Yeah, I mean, Proverbs 8 is a special, complicated case of like, why is it that that passage is the most discussed Old Testament passage right. in mm. patristic conversations about eternal generation? Everyone, you know, Arians, Athanasians, they, they all agreed you had to win the fight on that passage. Whereas even in Matt Emerson's chapter in this book, where we go to that chapter and, and um, build a case for it, there has to be sort of a sophisticated awareness that you're doing a cross-cultural inquiry, right? That we have an intellectual culture that argues one way, and the Church Fathers had an intellectual culture that argued another way. And so you kind of have to move into the neighborhood and come to understand the local customs <laughs> to see how things go. In general, I mean, I'm modern and can't help but be modern, and so that means by nature I'm good at tearing things down into little tiny atomistic bits and seeing how they work. That's just how my people work here in these ages. But in the ancient world, they weren't as good at that, and they were incredibly good at unitive, holistic argumentation. And so I, th I think you have to be aware that you're doing something cross-cultural there when you, when you move into that sort of appeal to Proverbs 8. Yeah, and certainly for us today, although we can't fully adopt that mindset, we are who we are, we're situated where we're situated— it is probably the case that we all need to grow in our appreciation for that kind of exegetical work, which is very different from what we tend to do today. Yeah, because that holism is really beneficial to, to some of our ills. All right, so springing off that, maybe a final point, and I want to ask Fred about a couple of points from his own chapter in the book, Eternal Generation and Soteriology. Mm -hmm. And Fred, and they're not asking you to summarize the entirety, but you make some interesting points, not just of an exegetical holism with regard to the biblical data, but even one of a more systematic theological character where you're looking at the category or the topic of soteriology. You say this near the beginning of your chapter about the Trinity and the doctrine of salvation. These two doctrines presuppose each other in a special way, and that there's a, a mutual illumination of eternal generation and soteriology. What do you mean by that? How, how do they presuppose each other? How are they that closely connected? One, you know, when I read systematic theology, soteriology is a few hundred pages after I'm done with my doctrine of God section. How is it that these are as closely related as you're saying? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And it's, it's kind of my life message uh, that the, the doctrine of salvation ought to be shaped by the doctrine of God. And it's not that it had to be, you know, God is omnipotently powerful and infinitely creative and could have saved us any number of ways, I suppose. Um, but what he in fact did was open up the divine life to us through the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit so that the very pattern of what it is to be saved, to come to the Father through Jesus the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, is kind of an externalization or a, a saving revelation of who God eternally is and would have been even if he had never created the world or never saved us or hadn't even saved us in this particular way. So my follow-up on that says comes to exactly what you were saying. You mentioned, you say this, that eternal processions, the going forth of the Son and the Spirit in the Godhead from mm -hmm. all eternity, eternal processions ground temporal missions which ground full salvation. Mm -hmm. 
maybe I could just leave it with that because that, <laughs> I'll, and maybe as a teaser to the reader to say, if if you want to understand the close connection of your salvation to the triune God, not just coincidentally or awkwardly sitting alongside each other, mm. but the one revealing and inviting us to the other. Um, see your chapter, but any follow <laughs> any follow up on that? No, uh, I would just I would just say that. Back when I wrote my book, The Deep Things of God, I wondered whether to teach the generation of the Son and the spiration of the Spirit, or whether to do sort of more of a least common denominator Trinitarianism, because not everyone is alert and aware to the fact that they ought to believe these doctrines about the eternal processions. So I thought, well, I could teach this, you know, in a in a stripped down kind of a way and maybe reach more people, help more people, because what I really want to get to is the connection to the gospel and the Trinity, and maybe I could do that better without these processions. Then as I tried to write it that way, I thought, no, it's too thin, it's too brittle, it's too narrow. If you actually want to lead people to perceive and understand what they have experienced when they've experienced salvation in Christ through the Holy Spirit, you really need to give them at least some introduction at some level to these eternal relations within God, these relations of origin. So last question then, Fred, where would you recommend people go for that kind of introduction? We would commend, absolutely commend this book, Retrieving Eternal Generation, to our listeners, and we hope many of them get a chance to, to read it. Is there a place in this book which you would use as your kind of go-to starting place? Is there another mm. text that you would use as your as your go-to? So if someone came to you persuaded by hearing what you just said, yeah, where do they begin if this is new material? Yeah, well, we tried to write this book and edit this book together as a um, as a kind of a, a clearinghouse of multiple different approaches, um, so that if you're just really into the Westminster Confession, uh, there's a chapter that can draw you in there. If there's a part of the biblical witness that's, ob- you know, if you think it's all about monogenese, great, we've got a chapter that'll that'll help you with that. Scott Swain's opening chapter really frames things as it's about the divine names and God's self-naming in the history of salvation. And when he said he wanted to write that, I thought, well, why, Scott? We're writing about eternal generation. But you realize what he's directing us to there is we're having this whole conversation because God says that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. He gave us those words, and to reflect on the relation of Father to Son and name the relation as eternal generation is simply to reflect more deeply on those revealed names of God. So there's that. Then the other thing I'd say is uh, to get more from this, it's a part of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is not the whole thing. We're guilty of not saying very much at all about the Holy Spirit here. And so once you've kind of got an angle on this at all, just pull down your favorite reference works on the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Robert Lethem's The Holy Trinity uh, is, is a good place to go to kind of get 500 pages of the big picture. There's my book, The Deep Things of God, is in kind of an introduction to some of the practical effects of the doctrine of the Trinity. Fred, thanks so much for your time today. The book is Retrieving Eternal Generation. And Dr. Sanders, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. We'd like to offer those of you who are interested the opportunity to get a free copy of Retrieving Eternal Generation. Our good, good friends at Zondervan have provided us with some copies to give away. So you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and then there'll be a, a menu option there for you to enter for a chance to win. As always, I want to remind you that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals is supported by listeners like you. And if you're able to make a gift to support the work of the Alliance, we'd very much appreciate that. You can do it on placefortruth.org or alliancenet.org. And thanks again for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.